This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When you say the Senate has changed forever, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, I don't think we're going to ever have a Senate that is uh, the way it used to be when we had senators working together, Democrats and Republicans, and that way you didn't have the tribal politics we have now. Where now we just have uh, Democrats in one tribe, Republicans in the other, and nothing gets done. Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid was the last Democrat to run the Senate. I spoke to Senator Reid to discuss his protege and sort of successor, current Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, well, we're just two and a half short weeks from Republicans choosing to follow Ted Cruz into a box canyon and shutting down the Department of Homeland Security. Incidentally, I had to look up what a box canyon was. It's sort of like the dead end on Ninth Avenue in Manhattan. Anyway, 18 days. Are you so serious you don't laugh at anything over there in the press corps? We only laugh at things that are funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. My best friend. Okay. At first, I didn't want to do an episode on Chuck Schumer. I like doing episodes on guys that coordinate secretive networks of billionaires or own private militaries or try to steal all the water in California. That one's coming later this season. But Chuck Schumer? My passion is to legislate. Taking an idea, not always original with me, shaping it, molding it, building a coalition, reaching out to others who might not agree with you, and winning the support of Democrats, Republicans, and independents in passing it. And here he is arguing with President Trump in the Oval Office. Chuck, did you want to say something? Yeah, here's what I want to say. We have a lot of disagreements here. We do not want to shut down the government. You have called 20 times to shut down the government. You say, I want to shut down the government. We don't. We want to come to an agreement. If we can't come to an agreement, we have solutions that will pass the House and Senate right now and will not shut down the government. And that's what we're urging you to do. Not threaten to shut down the government, because you, you let me just finish, because you can't get the your last way. Time you shut it down, you yeah, let me say something, Mr. President. You just say, my way or we'll shut down the government. We have a proposal that Democrats and Republicans will support to do a CR that will not shut down the government. We urge you to take it. And if it's not good border security, I it won't take it. It is very good border security. And if it's security. not good border security, I won't take it. It's what the Because when you look at these numbers, of the effectiveness of our borders. Schumer is the son of an exterminator, a working-class New York public school graduate. He's won every election he's ever run in. He's broken records for fundraising, that secretly most important part of politics, bringing in millions of dollars for his own campaign and the party, and risen to be, along with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, one of the most powerful Democrats in government, and one of the most powerful allies of the financial industry. He's been called a friend of Wall Street by the press and the guardian of America's capital markets by the president of the Managed Funds Association, literally the hedge fund lobby. And if the Democrats win the Senate in November, he'll be majority leader, one of the most powerful positions in government. So, who is Chuck Schumer? 
I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the stories of people who have it. This week, Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Charles Schumer was born in working-class Flatbush, Brooklyn, to Selma and Abraham Schumer in 1950. Known as Chucky, Charles was the oldest of three kids. Selma was a homemaker, and Abraham was an exterminator who often worked 13-hour days, six days a week. Schumer's sister Fran told the Washington Post, quote, We always associated the smell of triple-X roach spray with love. Schumer went to James Madison High, a public school in deep Brooklyn. Madison is weirdly prolific for producing lawmakers. Senators Bernie Sanders and Norm Coleman are both graduates, and so is the Supreme Court's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Also, Andrew Dice Clay and Chris Rock. Fun bunch. Schumer was that kid that did all the activities. Editor-in-chief of the school paper, math team leader, budget committee. He was on the basketball and baseball team, but at 146 pounds, he says, he was too light for football. James Madison High was, importantly, one of New York City's first schools to be desegregated. Yes, liberal elite haven New York City didn't desegregate schools until the mid-1960s. Schumer was a student at the time and lived through this somewhat historic moment. Academically, the dude is smart. Really smart. He got a perfect score on his SAT and was valedictorian at a big New York City school. Here's Harry Reid. A lot of people don't understand the intellect of Chuck Schumer. This is really hard to comprehend. But he got a perfect score in the SAT, and a perfect score in the LSAT, the Law School Aptitude Exam. That is unheard of. It doesn't happen very often. So first of all, I recognize the intellectual capacity of Chuck Schumer. He gets into Harvard. And as a working-class kid from Brooklyn, he's one of few. When I went to uh, Harvard, I was scared. Because how was I going to compete? In those days, Harvard was 80% fancy private schools. My father was an exterminator. He didn't go to college, you know, all of that. And so how was I going to compete with all these fancy people? And I told people that when I got to Harvard, I found the following. I found that the Madison education kept me in the ballpark. I was able to compete just fine in most areas, okay? But here's what else I found. I had something that those fancy kids from Harvard didn't have because I went to a big, big high school that was very diverse, where you were on your own, where you had to get along with people of all different backgrounds, all different races, religions, creeds, colors, economic levels. And so I learned something because I had to get along that these kids from Harvard didn't have. A way of how to get things done, how to make things work, how to bring people together. You know what we call it in Brooklyn? Street smarts. He was really smart. He, he was very proud of his upbringing and his achievements. That was part of his persona. That was Carol Kellerman. She's been Schumer's best friend since college, according to his 2007 book, Positively American. Kellerman went to Radcliffe. Back then, Harvard was the men's college and Radcliffe was the women's college. And Schumer and a few notable friends did, like, the nerd version of an Animal House prank. 
when I met him, I was a freshman and he was a junior. And he and two of his friends, um, and a, a, an interesting trio still to this day, E.J. Dion, who became a uh, reporter and columnist for the Washington Post, and Kem Carey, John Carey's brother. Uh, the three of them were buddies in college, and they were involved with the Harvard Young Democrats. And they decided that they were going to come up to Radcliffe and go to the freshman dormitories and recruit freshmen for the Harvard Young Democrats. Uh, they probably had some other goals in mind, not just recruiting, but they literally went knocking on doors. And I opened my door to the three of them and they told me about Harvard Young Democrats, which I then got involved with. And Chuck and I have been friends ever since that day. In 1968, Schumer volunteered for Eugene McCarthy, a long-shot Democratic presidential candidate who ran against the Vietnam War and then-incumbent president Lyndon B. Johnson. McCarthy nearly defeated Johnson in the New Hampshire primary, a result which many, Schumer included, believe led to Johnson's decision to no longer seek re-election. Trust me, this was a big deal. Schumer told Harvard many years later, quote, I said to myself, wow, a ragtag group of students and other assorted nobodies toppled the most powerful man in the world. This is what I want to dedicate my life to. Harvard and I think Chuck were much more affected by the anti-war movement than I was. You know, he was there in 1968 when there was the strike and there was the Students for a Democratic Society. I came the next year. And what I remember was much more, um, we have to get rid of Nixon, um, than being engaged in grassroots demonstrations or marching. I think my way of being in politics was much more working through the established electoral politics channels um, than people who kind of started out a little bit before me and um, were more in the outside protest orientation. Chuck, I think, was a little of each. Schumer stays at Harvard for law school, but volunteers back in New York for the Brooklyn Borough President campaign of state assemblyman Stephen J. Solars, who ended up losing to some guy from Bensonhurst. When Schumer graduates law school, Solars is leaving the state assembly after a successful election to the House of Representatives. The assembly seat, District 45, is open. Schumer runs. He literally campaigned in a subway station at 7 a.m. the day after graduation. The New York Times endorses him, calling Schumer, quote, a brilliant young Harvard Law School graduate with roots in the district who has gained national recognition as an authority on campaign financing reform. It's a tough race. Schumer went up against the Democratic Party machine led by political boss Meade Esposito. So slim were Schumer's chances that the local barber, who was also the local bookie, told the then 23-year-old Schumer that the odds of him winning were set at 50 to 1. Here's Carol Kellerman. First of all, he has an unbelievable amount of energy. You know, he's just up at the crack of dawn, goes till 10 or 11, always thinking. Um, 
and he is very results oriented. He likes lists. He likes to check things off the list. He's very result focused and he can keep going as long as he perceives that there's an objective that he's trying to get to. The only ding on Schumer from this campaign I can find is a report by the New York Environmental Protection Agency. They put him on their list of political candidates who were the worst violators of rules about putting posters in public spaces. It's litter. But hey, the posters worked. The 50 to 1 long shot, Chuck Schumer, is elected to the assembly at just 23 years old. I mean, he was very young. The older people looked at him as their wonderful, successful grandson. Um, You know, he was great with the senior citizens in the district. Just great. Um, He'd go to the beach clubs and talk to everybody. He thought that, you know, you were the new generation. But again, not as outside um, iconoclasts who thought that the system needed to be changed. It was, we are going to make the system work for everybody. And, you know, we're going to use the levers of the system and that, that the system itself and the people it produced were democracy and that, that they were a manifestation of what's good in the American democratic system. He focused on local issues, really local. If you're a regular New York City bus commuter, get ready for a long, hot summer. Brooklyn Assemblyman Charles Schumer has just released a report which shows nearly half of all city buses have broken air conditioners. The chances are less than 50-50 that you would get air conditioning on this bus, which doesn't have it, as you can see by the open windows, or an average bus. These kinds of local issues are important. They matter. They affect people's lives. Surely if you commuted to work by bus on a hot day in New York in the 70s, air conditioning would be something you really cared about. But Schumer also saw another side of the city. In 1979, the kid from Flatbush who starred on an academic quiz show and was on the math team was photographed arriving at Studio 54 in a sharp overcoat and bow tie to a birthday party for Roy Cohn. Yeah, that Roy Cohn. Joe McCarthy's number two and infamous political villain. That's Roy Cohn. C-O-H-N. Look him up. What were parties at Studio 54 known to be like? Well, let's toss to the president. Quote, I would watch supermodels getting screwed. Well-known supermodels getting screwed on a bench in the middle of the room. There were seven of them, and each one was getting screwed by a different guy. That's the president speaking. To think, just 40 years later, Schumer and Trump would be yelling at each other in the Oval Office. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's 1980, and Schumer is running for Congress. When Chuck ran for Congress in 1980, and I was the campaign manager... We had a kitchen cabinet. Um, They literally met on the weekend in my kitchen in Brooklyn. He outworked everybody. And we had very good 
television and radio, and we had great, a huge volunteer corps. And I remember that at a certain point, you know, some district that election district that we were so worried about, and the tally came in, and it, you know, it was like Schumer two thirds and everybody else splitting the other third. And I remember looking at the guy who had been my prime voter, ran the phone bank guy, and we were like, what were we thinking? What did we get ourselves so nervous about? Let's get out of here. And we just took off and, you know, went drinking. <laughs> the nineteen eighty general election was very good for Republicans. Ronald Reagan is elected president, defeating incumbent Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan was was really shocking. But that just made the Schumer victory all the more important. We were gonna be a check on him. We were gonna try to stop things that he did. I don't remember myself being as appalled by him as Nixon. Um, but maybe I was at the time. Um, and I think Chuck was, was you know, he was going to be in the vanguard of the, um, the legislative branch being a check on Reagan. Obviously, the Reagan presidency is not a great time for Democrats. And it's when Schumer is first coming up in Congress. Schumer writes in his book a bit on how he says he makes political decisions. When he was having trouble making a call, he claims, he'd look at the issue and think about a couple named Joe and Eileen. Joe and Eileen O'Reilly are an imaginary couple. Joe is an accountant, as I recall. I think Eileen was a physician's assistant, worked in a doctor's office in some sort of administrative capacity. I'm pretty sure they have two kids. And so, you know, they're at a middle income level. They live in a single family house. And when he started in Congress, um, this couple was the guiding light, the North Star for him. What would they want? What would they think about whatever he was doing? For people who go all the way back with him, you know, if you say Joe and Eileen would like that or Joe and Eileen wouldn't like that, you know, everyone will laugh and, and understand exactly what you're talking about. Fifteen years later, Schumer would tell Frank Bruni that, quote, Congress was a revelation to me. Huge areas of endeavor had no experts. I said, I'm going to become the expert in housing, in banking. And knowledge, Schumer said, was power. Remember, Schumer is really smart. And he's able to develop a real understanding of banking and the financial system. Like, listen to this 1982 op-ed he wrote. Here's my coworker, Jameson Claxton, who truly has a lovely voice. Banks are insulators against risk. Brokers are conduits of risk. While banks maintain public confidence in the financial system by providing a safe place to hold savings, brokers link entrepreneurs and investors willing to risk their capital. Banking regulation is designed to protect the safety and soundness of banks. Securities regulation is designed to ensure a fair and open market. This is important. Schumer is explaining how, in his view, two major elements of the financial system work best when they are distinct from one another. Schumer is referring to the Glass-Steagall Act, the 1933 law mandating separation between investment banks like, say, Goldman Sachs, and commercial banks, like where Joe and Eileen, for example, have their checking account and mortgage. Commercial and investment banks 
evaluate similar information in making decisions, but their perspectives are incompatible. Combining them will bring out the weaknesses rather than the strengths of each. There will be less risk capital available for new and particularly non-conventional ideas and less safety for bank depositors. Simply stated, a banker with nothing to sell will be a better custodian than one with a direct interest in the outcome. In another op-ed a few years later called Banks Aren't for Gambling, he cited the existence of the FDIC, the organization that makes sure you won't lose all the money in a checking or savings account, to further prove his point. If the government believes that some institutions are so important that it must step in to guarantee all deposits, is it wise for us to further destabilize the system by allowing banks to enter the securities, insurance, and real estate businesses? The banks most interested and capable of getting into the volatile businesses are those that we have determined are too important to fail. Combining high-risk activities and complete federal insurance will prove to be explosive. Too important to fail. Sounds familiar, right? He's literally anticipating the 2008 financial crisis. We all paid for it. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars for banks that were, quote, too big to fail. If a high-risk affiliate company of a major bank were to fail or stumble, its securities division, for example, the disease will spread quickly to the bank itself. He wrote similar op-eds for over a decade. We found them up through 1995, repeatedly and emphatically stating that the separation between consumer and investment banks outlined by Glass-Steagall was an important part of keeping our economy afloat. That generally, regulation of the industry is a must, and that missteps in financial regulation could lead to financial crisis. But by 1999, when Schumer is senator, we get this in the New York Times. Quote, Schumer, with strong ties to Wall Street, has long sought legislation to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act. End quote. The securities industry donated $1.28 million to Schumer's congressional campaigns in his last five years in the House, the run-up to his Senate run. In 1997 and 1998, he got more money from that industry than any other senator, and he wasn't even senator yet. Remember, Harry Reid. Well, there's not a better fundraiser in the entire Senate than Chuck Schumer. That's why I uh, had him two successive times the head of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee because he was such a good fundraiser. By late 2008, Schumer's support of Wall Street is a foregone conclusion. He's noted as a senator who, quote, has embraced the industry's free market, deregulatory agenda more than almost any other Democrat in Congress, even backing some measures now blamed for contributing to the financial crisis, end quote. Those were the very same types of measures he opined at length against in op-eds for decades. In 1998, Frank Bruni spent some time with Schumer. They ate oatmeal in the U.S. Capitol. Quote, am I more conservative than I was 20 years ago? Schumer asked himself. Sure, but it's been a gradual process. End quote. That article is from a profile during Schumer's 1998 run for Senate in New York. A pivotal period, this switch from serving a district in Brooklyn to the entire state. Wall Street to Niagara Falls. Schumer defeats a big name in the primary. Geraldine Ferraro, the first woman to be nominated vice president. 
His opponent in the general is Republican incumbent Senator Al D'Amato. Here's Carol Kellerman. I would have thought it was a long shot on paper. I mean, you know, you're running against an incumbent who's kind of popular. Um, but I'd been through campaigns with him, and I knew that he could, he could do it. Back in Washington, Senator Harry Reid, then poised to be party whip, was watching the race. I thought it was a very, very difficult race for Schumer. But he had done such a good job as a member of the House. He's a very, very smart man and also somebody who is uh, courageous. He's a very, very uh, courageous legislator. He also had a unique ability to work hard. Fundraising, of course, plays a hand in the story, too. At the time, it was the second most expensive Senate race ever. Like Schumer, D'Amato is a damn good fundraiser. In fact, according to reporting on the race, they're going to a lot of the same people. Quote, since 1993, Schumer's collected more than $1.4 million from donors who also gave to D'Amato, including many Wall Street executives, lawyers, and real estate developers. End quote. Another key part of the campaign was that Schumer ran to the right of D'Amato on crime. And he was tough on crime. Schumer helped write the 1994 crime bill that criminal justice advocates say led to mass incarceration and worsening systemic inequalities in America. But it was a different world, says Carol Kellerman. Being tough on crime was very important. And that was a unifier. That was one of the reasons you could get people to vote for gun control. Tough on crime, that was the phrase. Everybody had to be tough on crime in, in every party, in every part of the country. So. Yes, if you look back, was it an overcorrection? Are there things now that, in hindsight, you know, shouldn't have been done? Sure, but you're talking about 25 years ago. Different times call for different solutions. That's another thing that Chuck is good at, is, you know, understanding that things change. Schumer defeated the incumbent D'Amato and was elected to the Senate with 54% of the vote. Now some fundraising of my own. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast where we examine power by looking at the people who have it. Don't forget, every episode has an article over at nowthisnews.com where you can catch some cool stuff we couldn't fit into the episode. Anyway, back to Schumer. Let's talk about his apartment. Some politicians rent or buy townhouses and or mansions near D.C., but Schumer lived in what he called Omega House. Here's CNN reporting from the scene in 2013. Paint peeling off the walls, sheets covering the windows, broken blinds, a mangled chair covered up with a wood board, an ancient stove with a giant hole. And yes, that's underwear in the living room. What looks and feels like the most rundown frat house on campus is actually the Capitol Hill home of some of the most powerful men in Washington. Welcome to Omega House. I love what you've done with the place. Thank you. <laughs> Dick Durbin and Chuck Schumer, the second and third ranking Senate Democrats, live here together. You guys got the rent from <laughs> Yes. The senator lived in a college student-like home that looks a lot like where I live now at 31. The apartment was apparently so gross that when Schumer's wife visited D.C., she refused to stay there. But it wasn't all shenanigans. Sometimes intra-party disputes got in the way. 
In 2010, Senators Schumer and Durbin, guys who in all likelihood used the same shower, were both maneuvering themselves for power within the party. Durbin was already Democratic whip, and Schumer had been given a newly created role that Durbin felt appropriated too much power. The situation got so tense that Durbin almost moved out. It's not an exaggeration or dramatization to say it's totally possible these guys were literally arguing over who had to do the dishes as they were feuding over who would be the future leader of the party. At the time, Harry Reid was majority leader. I stepped into a situation where we were in a minority, the Democrats were in a minority. But with the help of my Democratic senators, especially Senator Schumer, who I made head of my senatorial campaign committee, um, we were able to quickly uh, get out of the minority and became the majority party. The Senatorial Campaign Committee is a fundraising machine. It's an organization to which major donors can write big checks and exert an influence on the party as a whole because it raises money for the Senate campaigns of Democrats nationwide. It's one of the most important jobs in the party and something Schumer was really good at. Well, my leadership was a little different than my predecessors. I made sure that my leadership team, which consisted of Durbin, Schumer, and Murray, Durbin the whip, um, Schumer, the head of the DSCC, and Patty Murray, uh, my go-to person to get things done in the Senate, I made sure that everything that I did, I ran past them. I would have them come to my office sometimes three and four times a day over issues with them. So that's how I ran the Senate. I depended on those three people to make sure that when we went to our full leadership team, they were supportive of what I was trying to do. When we went to our Tuesday caucuses, they were supportive of everything that I'd done. So I feel, felt very comfortable with the leadership team. And of course, uh, no one was more active and supportive of me than Chuck Schumer. He was uh, such a good senator and a good friend. In 2015, Harry Reid announces he won't be running for re-election to his Nevada Senate seat, and thus he will no longer lead Democrats in the Senate. We're nearing the end of the Obama years. Dozens of Republicans are running for president, including one-time Playboy cover model Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton is being challenged by a Democratic socialist from Vermont. Things are changing, and the people, the Joe, the Eileen's, want something new. So what did Chuck Schumer want? He has a chance encounter with a fellow Brooklynite in an elevator that made a small city paper. Harry Pincus grew up near the Schumers, and Abe, Chuck's dad, was Pincus's exterminator. Why wasn't Schumer supporting fellow James Madison High School alum Bernie Sanders for president? Pincus asked. Quote, I like Bernie and he's a friend, Schumer responded. But you have to understand that if Hillary wins, I'll be Senate Majority Leader. Imagine me, the son of Abe, who never finished high school, as Senate Majority Leader. End quote. Here's Harry Reid. And can you talk a bit about the role of minority leader opposed to majority leader that have these two different roles? Well, one's a better job than the other. Majority leader, you control everything that goes on in the Senate. Minority leader, you are just trying to make sure that the majority does take advantage of your senators. I'm not sure if you guys saw this. It was on TV, but uh, Hillary Clinton loses the election. 
and the Democrats lose the Senate. Schumer is elected leader of his party, but it's minority leader. Mitch McConnell becomes the face of the Senate. And the McConnell-Trumpified version of politics is a completely new thing that Schumer has to contend with, like playing Monopoly at a friend's house and you have to go by their family's rules. And how did you watch the Senate change in those 30 years? How has the institution changed? I think most of the change has taken place since I've left. Um, we've seen the, with the Trump presidency and the Republicans in the Senate being craven and not doing anything to oppose some of his most ridiculous ideas, it's really hurt the Senate because the Senate now has turned into a body that is, uh, they don't do amendments. The only thing they do are judges. So the Senate has been changed probably forever. I think that uh, the filibuster as we knew it is gone. I think the Senate will soon be just another House of Representatives, which isn't the end of the world. You still have a bicameral legislature. You have six-year terms. So, But the Senate, as we knew it, is no longer there. So how does this former mentor think his protege is doing in the job he once held? One thing I'm not going to do this morning is second guess what Senator Schumer has done or Durbin, his assistant, or what he has done. I think that they did the best they could with the tools they had. Again, uh, contrary to how things used to be, the Republicans were in lockstep with Trump. They were afraid in the worst way to do anything to offend Trump. Reid is not surprised that Republicans voted against impeachment. Everyone knew before it started that the, unless it was some small legislative miracle, that the Republicans would vote against impeachment. And that's what they did, everyone. But Reid thinks that this isn't the kind of Senate the American people want, that Americans understood that we have a system of checks and balances, of accountability. And such a lack of accountability, the failure to impeach President Trump for actual crimes, may lead to a very different government in November. I'm optimistic that um, we're going to have a contested race. Trump, as bad as he is, is not going to be a pushover. I think Senator Biden is going to be a tremendously important person in the annals of history because he's going to, he's going to beat Donald Trump. And one of the things I'm waiting with anticipation is for his selection of a vice president. That's going to mean a great deal to the Democrats winning. Who Joe Biden picks as vice president. So I think the Republicans' um, activities in the Senate is going to pal the Democrats into majority. I think we're going to take Colorado, North Carolina, Maine, Arizona. We're going to knock off an incumbent senator of Maine, says Susan Collins. I didn't mention early on that uh, John Cornyn, I think, is in trouble in Texas. I think that'll be a much closer race than anyone anticipates. So, now, as we speak, the race in Kentucky is very tight. McGrath, a military veteran, is uh, holding McConnell at this stage to a standstill. They're both uh, they're tied, basically, in the polls. 
Schumer will become Senate Majority Leader if the Democrats can take back the Senate in 2020. So if Schumer gets this job, this ultimate role he's wanted, what will he do with it? Let's look a little bit more into what he cares about. Here's Carol Kellerman. When you go out to dinner with him, he spends most of the time talking to the waiters. You know, you're sitting at the table and he's talking to them. Where are you from? How long have you been in New York? Why did you come here? So he that's the way he was at college and law school. And it's the way he is with his constituents. So he just was interested in other people's background. And isn't it fascinating? I mean, that's why electoral politics appealed to him because it was a way to use these talents and this interest that he had um, to accomplish things and to help New York. But the interest and the, the, the outgoing nature and the people-directed personality comes first. And that's why he's such a great leader in the Senate, because he really is able to grok into the members and the, their needs um, to speak to what their constituents need and not be impatient with that or minimize it. That's why he could work with other members and get them to sponsor bills with him. And that's why he could get people to vote sometimes in ways that were difficult for them because he's got this ability to see issues through the eyes of the other representatives and, and understand what it's like and how they're going to have to go back and explain themselves at town hall meetings with their constituents. In 10 years, Chuck Schumer went from being a kid from Brooklyn, part of the ragtag group of students and other assorted nobodies toppling the most powerful man in the world, to being a state assemblyman fighting for air conditioning on city buses. In just 10 more years, he was passionately advocating to protect American mortgages and bank accounts as a member of the House of Representatives. In 10 more, he's being called a guardian of America's capital market. And in 20, he's leading his party. A lot of this can be attributed to Schumer's incredible intellect. Like, look how well he grasped prophetically complex financial ideas when few others were talking about them but then proceeded to support legislation that undid the regulation that he knew to be critically important to the stability of America's banks. The repeal of Glass-Steagall didn't cause the 2008 crisis, but it damn sure led, in part, to the existence of banks that were, quote, too important to fail. Those are Schumer's own words. Is that leadership? These sort of compromises that a politician is forced to make over the years to lead an institution like the Senate? Or is this just what Washington does to people? In many ways, Chuck Schumer's story is the American dream. The democratic meritocracy rightfully elevating one of its best and brightest. The son of Abe the Exterminator who never went to college could run the Senate next year. That's the American dream you hear about. And then there's the story of what he had to do to get there. And that's also the American dream. The tremendous compromise the system demands of those who hope to work within it to make change for you and I and all the other Joe and Eileen O'Reilly's out there. 
On the next episode of Who Is, we take a closer look at the system and the powerful financial interests that exert a profound influence on it. Where do these check-writing billionaires make their money? One of them runs a hedge fund whose business is shaking down entire countries, places like Argentina, Peru, and the Congo, whose firm has allegedly hired private investigators to track the children of the CEOs of companies in which he has a stake and who was allegedly behind the infamous Steele dossier, the document that led to the rumor that in a safety deposit box in a heavily guarded vault somewhere beneath Moscow exists a compromising videotape of Donald Trump cavorting with Russian sex workers. On the next episode of Who Is, it's Paul Singer. A sincere thank you to our guests, Carol Kellerman, who has had a long and distinguished career in public service in New York City, and who has worked with and for Senator and Representative Chuck Schumer throughout his career, and former Senate Majority Leader and former amateur boxer Harry Reid, who represented Nevada in the Senate for 30 years. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Mara, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hong, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adekuter. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Jamison Claxton for his performance as Senator Chuck Schumer. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, Elias Acevedo, and PJ Evans for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two, new episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends. <laughs>